Hey everyone, welcome back to Deep Focus. I'm Quaid, and I'm here with my co-host Nick. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, woke up late today, didn't have work, you know. Very good. Slow day. Yeah, similar thing with me. Uh, school started today, but it's all online. It's my last oh. semester, so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I had yeah. to deal with that, but really I just looked over things and ignored it. Um, mm. Anyways, today we are going to be talking about Pitch Black came out in the year 2000 and sort of kickstarted the whole Riddick franchise. Yep. Um, it's directed by David and his last name, I think, is Toei. <laughs> That's how you say it. Okay. Uh, who has directed the entire franchise other than I oh. don't know if he did the animated one, but he did Pitch Black, the one that sort of transitioned it to sci-fi action, the Chronicles of Riddick, and then he did the recent one in 2013 just called Riddick. Sure. Which, uh, from what I understand, I remember when that was coming out, I was really interested in watching it, and apparently no one wanted to finance it. I don't think the Chronicles of Riddick did really well monetarily, so like Vin Diesel put up his own uh, property in order to secure oh, financing for it. That's yeah. cool. And I remember um, that one actually did pretty good. Yeah, I've always liked Vin Diesel as an actor. I agree. It's interesting uh, how he got started in the business. You know, it's a very similar to like Stallone's story where no one wanted him, you know, and he was right. a little too bit too much of a he came off too much as like a meathead to people. But mm -hmm. he ended up writing and directing and starring in his own film. I don't remember the name right now. I could look it up. But Steven Spielberg saw it. And this is what, you know, kickstarted his entire career was like Spielberg thought he was really talented and cast him in Saving Private Ryan. Mm. So. That's um, awesome. Yeah, I think he's talented. I always have a thing for the. The action stars. I think they're always underrated. They're always a lot better than people give them credit for. Right. Is it called uh, Strays? Oh, uh, yeah. Strays. That's what it's called. Okay. Cool, cool. 1997. Um, that's awesome. Um, I've always liked... Uh, I feel like he always chooses his um, his characters very uh, precisely. I think... He, and he always, he always has this kind of commonality between all the characters that he... Um, chooses which i think is that um they kind of have this um unveiled perception of reality in front of them you know yeah where it's just very very clear um i, I guess like you know in Save private ryan not so much but um yeah he was like yeah, a side character. one of the side soldiers yeah, yeah that at but, some point yeah no and i think pitch black is no different where you know, he's playing this character that has this very, very kind of unadulterated version of, or un unadulterated view of reality. Yeah, like you a know? realist. He's always playing right, a right. sort of like very gritty understanding. I mean, it's right. interesting if you look at his filmography, he's just like a franchise guy. He's made so many successful franchises. Triple X, Riddick, The Fast and Furious, and also now he's, you know, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Isn't he Groot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, um, also, he was in that movie that uh, you enjoyed. It was like an underrated movie. You have a, me and you both have an affinity for finding movies that were sort of panned but then enjoyable. Uh, the Last Witch Hunter, right? Oh, right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of movies actually on his filmography. I'm just looking over. It's like, oh yeah, I've been wanting to watch that. Like uh, Babylon AD. I hear things about that. Also, mm -hmm. you know, the theaters are going to open up this this coming Friday, and uh, their Bloodshot is going to be showing that one oh, that cool. was coming out. So that's what yeah, I'm going to yeah. go see. So, nice. Always been a fan, frankly. Always been yeah. a fan. Um, 
but yeah, no, I've always I've always enjoyed his character picks. Like I I feel like it's less um less archetypal. Even though I I feel like maybe you could make the argument that it is archetypal, but you know I I feel like for him it's always been um, a little bit deeper than that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like I've never seen him just play like a dumb meathead. True. You know, absolutely. Um, it's very but, rare. Yeah, I, w- um, I wonder if he uh, there's some sort of uh, fulfillment that he gets from playing characters like that. Um, yeah, Mel. I mean, it would just be awesome, right? You know, just imagine being the life of a uh, Vin Diesel, uh, Stallone, <laughs> a uh, Jason Statham. You know, sure, sure. Um, but yeah, so Pitch Black going to the the movie here. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about Pitch Black, especially in the context of the whole genre, and by the way, apparently the animated one that links Pitch Black and the Chronicles of Riddick wasn't directed by David Toe okay. um, or Towie, however we want, however we're supposed to say it. Yeah. But uh, Towie. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we should, I should look these things up before we start in the future. That's okay. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Is the fact that it's a, it's sort of a, I would describe it as like a sci-fi horror movie, or at least the attempt to be a sci-fi horror movie. I wonder what the genres are listed. Science fiction, action thriller. So yeah, yeah. I would say, I would say that's pretty accurate. It's pretty low on action, frankly. Uh, and I think right. it, I definitely think if you're watching this younger and you're not, desensitized or even if you're old and you're just not desensitized you definitely it's more of a fear playing around with fear than cool action right and then to see the the uh franchise get transitioned into like a pure science fiction action franchise is -hmm. interesting um i mean the the basic sort of uh synopsis of this movie is uh you know they wake up from cairo sleep on this uh spaceship that's taking these sort of back lanes through the galaxy that got hit by a meteor shower and now they crash landed on a planet that has uh, a 24 7 day cycle but once every few decades there's um, a period of night for like a very long time and these creatures that live under the surface um you know emerge and want to kill everyone (laughs) yeah Uh um i there's a lot of um, really cool themes in this film too, and yeah. um, I don't know, like like they touch on a lot of the different you know deadly sins, yeah, um, and they have all these. I I, I, I actually kind of wonder if that was kind of the pr- the original premise of the film, hmm. um, just because it's like so apparent when you watch it. Sure. Well, yeah. they, you know, uh, making a movie, a sci-fi movie about sins and paying for sins. Yeah. Well, or, or well, that's why it almost feels like a horror movie to me because yeah, it, uh, you know, it, it plays around with the sort of black and white morality and it's sort of, a, it's moralizing like a lot of horror movies were right. Certain right. sins are punished and certain people overcome and certain people find redemption even through punishment. Right. Right. So, um, but, you know the ending is uh is interesting because it is. I, I think you have you kind of have a reckoning for everybody uh throughout the film except for Riddick. Uh, well that's the interesting then, thing. And then he gets his at the end. Mm. You know, but it's not like it, it's not a 
it's um, not in a sacrificial sense, right? Yeah, it's not. He's yeah. not having to perform some contrition for past, you know, right. wrongs or it's that uh, someone getting else, punished. Um, yeah, convinces him to do the right thing. Well, yeah. and then someone else dies for him. Exactly. You know. And exactly. Yeah. No. It's uh because because he is he kind of plays off this idea that like people are um selfish right and people are animalistic and he's he's the biggest baddest animal in the room right yeah he's gonna survive right all these other dangerous people and then uh and then at the end this this uh captain this girl um she she ends up showing him that like she isn't what like she isn't the animal Right. Yeah. Uh, her um, name is uh, Rada Mitchell. And I was actually really surprised. This is the first time watching this movie. I've probably seen it three times okay. um, where I recognized her. She's the mom and man on fire. The great Tony Scott. Oh, film. OK. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, she's really good. She's yeah. great. Yeah. No, I. Uh, so I actually haven't seen this film since I was a kid and I, I didn't. Um, I mean, how old was I when I watched this? I, I think I was in middle school. You know, I didn't watch it, but I would, you know, my parents, when I was a kid, because this came out in 2000, so we've been around when we were kids, yeah. but they took me to a house party where a bunch of families were getting together and this was going on on the TV and it was like, oh, I was just sort okay. of standing there watching and it was freaking the shit out of me while I was standing there. <laughs> I was just like, especially yeah. I was started watching the scene where yeah. it's just turning to night in there. Those like the, the bird versions are like flying, you know? Or, yeah, yeah the bat versions uh, like the smaller bat versions and like the the girl gets eaten by them and i'm like what yeah. the fuck she just got <laughs> cut in half right um so it definitely captured my imagination as a kid and then you know when i finally was able to watch it later on um probably a five or so years later mm-hmm. i was immediately remembered and recognized there was that movie so yeah yeah um i think i watched it again in high school as well but um i really haven't seen it in like a long time like over a decade yeah. Um but it was nice coming back to it and a lot of this a lot of the CG held up a lot better than I thought it was going to. Oh yeah, big time. Um, it was very strange. I think it's yeah. cuz they're not on the screen that much or they're in darkness right, a lot right. of times. There was like not a heavy use of it. Um I'm actually surprised by the budget. I I actually thought this was like an indie movie or something. Oh, what was the budget? Um so it says 23 million. Okay. Um well, estimated, uh, but do you know so, the companies behind it? Is it listed in that anywhere? Um, I actually don't know, but Interscope Communications. I wonder if that was uh, some big time thing some other time ago. Oh well, yeah, they did like the Jumanji with uh, Robin Williams. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I kind of wonder. Um, so they doubled their money essentially on this cool. film, which isn't a huge success for films, but no, especially when you have to. Uh, split so much with all these other different companies yeah you know what i guess this was in 2000 though so this that budget might kind of make sense because this was before the um, age started... of the six yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah um, um and my it was dad also... uh, yeah go, go ahead. ahead um no it was it's also during the dvd era which um i like to kind of point out that a lot of these films were kind of just uh, used to make a lot of jobs and there was a lot of uh inflation in terms of um what went into the production um yeah. because they still do that 
Well, because like movies would make so much money back then, no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, um, that um, all you really needed was, you know, like decent advertisement, good box art and, you know, have it kind of stand out in uh, blockbuster. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, think about it. Just think about it. If every movie at the movie theater was costing between like one to 50 million dollars. You yeah. don't need to make an insane amount of money to turn a profit. Yeah, you're not going to make the same amount of money if you put like $200 million into an Avengers movie and it makes a billion. Right, right. You know, but right. you are going to, it's, you have a much safer bet. And then not only that, like you were saying, it's the DVD era. Far more people are buying physical media. I mean, people right, are right. still buying physical media a lot, but like far but more. Back than, then with like blockbusters and exactly. uh, any electronic store selling, like having a DVD section. Yeah. Um, people just perused and bought stuff, you know, and, um, the era, the forgotten era, the, the mid tier budget, man, <laughs> right, right. return. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think like what surprised me was that, uh, I felt like a lot of the elements in this felt indie. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure why, but it felt uh, like a vision, you know, it didn't yeah. feel like a generic blockbuster, you know? Whereas yeah. if you've seen this today, there'd be like a there'd be a good chance it would be very generic. Um, yeah, but I guess back then those those graphics were pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that uh that was very interesting. So half the movie you're seeing in this sort of like washed out uh color grade. Right. Um because of the two suns, well, the three suns at any time, and they're very bright. And uh and then it's not it's darkness for the other half of the movie. And in between there's this moment for like about five minutes on the screen where the color is normal and the lighting's normal. And like when that moment happens, right. you're like, holy shit, it looks like a normal movie and it's shot. So <laughs> the, the images right. are so sharp and nice, you know, but right. I, I liked the effects either way, but it was, uh, it was intense. It reminded me almost of that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Tarkovsky's stalker, but like that mm. thing is yeah, called yeah. Sapia for like the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie. Right. You know, that's definitely interesting. I think uh I think choices like that you don't really see too often anymore. Um because it does kind of kill the uh um what looks like the quality of the film. Yeah. You know. Uh I never minded it in pitch black, but I know that kind of like threw a lot of other people off. Yeah. It definitely um, does. But I always kind of wonder like at what point does your stylistic choice and um you know, the audience's ability to get into the film. Um, like at what point should you balance that out? Um, sure. And I think this is a great example of um, talking about that. Cause like, I think forgiving people are going to sit here and be like, well, no, it was obviously a stylistic choice. Like if you look at those five minutes in the middle, they show yeah. that they're incredibly capable of <laughs> filming standard. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, like when I first started, uh, when I first started, uh, Reaper, I was going to do something kind of similar where I wanted to push the, um, style of the camera a little harder. Yeah. Um, and I'm ended up, I ended up after, uh, two, two test shoots, just uh, pulling back on it kind of hard. Um, hmm. so I have like a, a little bit of that style where I, I basically made it, um, desaturated with certain popping colors. So not like at first I wanted to go very, very heavily into the, um, you know, not as far as like Sin City, but into yeah. the comic book look. You okay. Know? Um, 
but I decided to black and I decided, almost. Yeah, yeah. But I decided to pull it back, keep it natural looking, but you know, desaturate with a couple popping colors here and there. Okay. Um Yeah, it's but, interesting, you know, like even what you're saying about it uh feeling unique. Yeah, my comment about it being a, a coherent vision. You would just not see something like that on if you're talking about a Vin Diesel movie nowadays, that would be sci-fi. Like I highly doubt when I go watch Bloodshot that like over an hour of the movie is going to be either this sort of like blown out with, uh, you know, making the oranges and yellows um, very present or complete darkness, you know? Right, right. It's something you just don't see. I think it's also because the tools available to filmmakers are a little bit more specific. So maybe in the past, you know, it's like Tarkovsky doing Stalker in the very beginning with the Sapia. It's like, holy shit, you know, you have like three options, you know, that you right. can like fuck your footage around <laughs> and look like color effects. You know what I mean? Right, right. So it's like, yeah, we're going to do all Sapia, man, because that's what we got. And this one, it's very similar, you know, like the computer generated graphics aren't that big. Maybe the advances in certain editing technologies in terms of effects and color grading aren't there yet. Cause I was even mm-hmm. thinking while watching this, I was like, if you did this today, you could still make it incredibly bright and yellow and orange and yet not necessarily lose some of the image quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking, right, certain, right. you know, and uh, you could still make it uh, in a sense sharp rather than blown out. Right. So I think it's also a product of the times, you know, it's like there's a, it's sort of minted with the year 2000 on, on its face. Right, um, right, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the cinematographer behind it, and I actually, this might be his biggest credit. Okay. Um, David Egby. Yeah. Oh, he did, oh, yeah, he did the Mad Scooby-Doo. Max. Oh, okay, Mad Max. <laughs> cool. Scooby-Doo is another of my uh, childhood movies. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, I, he did a lot of the... Uh, the old oh he did Ironclad that recent sort of almost B movie okay. yeah maybe this is the guy Blue Streak trying to emulate when they're trying to make those like uh, when they're you know when you see those like kind of quirky like film school you know yeah uh, Mad Max style movies but Definitely. I don't know no I think I think this guy shows that he's very. Uh, well-versed at least in his camera, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I think he's, he heavily stylizes. Um, yeah. He's got a vision. Yeah. Maybe, I, I don't know how much of that was the director or him, but you know, maybe it was just the director kind of letting him go nuts with this one. Sure. Um, because there were a lot of heavily stylized shots, like using extreme wide angle lenses. Uh, like uh, what's that? Uh, you, you know, it like it's like a fisheye where it like bends, like oh, yeah. the, it bent the entire uh, horizon in like sure. a U, you know, and it sure. was to like showcase both suns as they were walking by. No, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 stuff like that. Um, this film also made a, a ton of use of the extreme close up. Yeah, um, which you don't see that often. I think that's that's maybe what made me think that it was. Um, indie because I feel like usually when movies make heavy use of the extreme close-up it's because they don't want to um they want to hide <laughs> right they, they want to hide, hide the exteriors yeah, right. exactly which like you know if this movie was indie and they were just hiding the exterior it would still be good because they had intention behind the extreme close-ups but yeah. um 
Yeah, no, I think this movie's interesting because I think it's it's very easy to write this film off. Well, the, speaking of that real fast, let's just go over some things. Yeah. 59% on the tomato score from uh, Rotten Tomatoes from critics, but 77% yeah. from the audience. Let's look at Metacritic. 49 from critics, right. user score 8.5. Let's look at IMDb, user score 7.1. Roger mm-hmm. Ebert wrote a review in 2000, gave it two stars. Yeah. See, I think it's like, I think it's very easy to write this film off as being mediocre. And I think, um, I would say it's interesting because I think a lot of, there's a lot of areas in this film where you could mistake, uh, um, like an informed decision with, uh, a lack of quality. Sure. You know, kind of like how, uh, just to relate it back to what we were just talking about with, with the like blown out video, mm-hmm. um, blown out video is a common mistake among film school students. Yeah. Right. And, uh, it's usually looked at as something that's, uh, you know, not good. Uh, it's the same thing that happened with, uh, Alita Battle Angel where like you have this naive, cringy girl, you know, yeah, as your main character and, um, like a lot of the critics mistake it as the script being naive and um, cringy where like the script is, if you watch that film is very, very self-aware that, um, you know, that this girl is completely naive. Like an entire bar of characters just laughs at her. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, I feel like this film is the same way where when you look at this and you see a couple shots at the beginning, when, you know, things are blown out, like a, a, you know, partially practiced uh, cinematographer might look at that and be like, wow, what a horrible mistake. Like, did they not, um, like test for luminance? Like, do they like, (laughs) yeah, you know, are they just stopped up too much? Like what's going on, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or stopped down, I guess. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, like they would just think that, oh, they screwed up their settings. Yeah, exactly. And I'd say like the, the only place I, I wouldn't call this film a masterpiece at all, but um, the only places where I felt like the film actually suffered was like parts of the dialogue. And then uh, this, the music. Sure. You know, and sure. Um, and they weren't like horrible either. It was just, uh, it was like, underwhelming. Yeah, in terms of uh, yeah, some of the lines were uh, very almost B movie esque. Right, um, right. Well, and I think I think that combined with um, these stylistic decisions that could be misconstrued, like maybe maybe what was happening was there wasn't enough uh, like faith built up by the rest of the film for critics to really uh, give it the benefit of the doubt in terms of these. Um, other I mean, it also. It also just starts that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you're not feeling it immediately, if you don't get it immediately, you're just going to be like, well, they fucked that up and I'm dealing with it for half the movie. Right. Um, An interesting thing that I wanted to point out about this movie as well, before we dive into the meaning and maybe like specific elements. Yeah. um, Is uh, my dad's a huge fan of the Chronicles of Riddick movie. And I watched that several times with him. Yeah. And, when you watch that movie, it's easy to retroactively make Riddick the main ca- uh, c- character of this movie. Sure. But I don't think he's the main character. 
Yeah, I think no, definitely not. Yeah, this movie really was not supposed to be about him. It was um, Radha's Mitchell's character, the actress who plays the pilot. Yeah, Carolyn. Who exactly? Who was the main character of, of this movie? And it's very interesting um, to me because they even do start out with uh, Riddick giving his sort of uh, voiceover, his monologue inside, as you know, they're all in Cairo sleep, but not him because he's the predator and he can never turn off his mind, and he's just waiting right, for right. something to happen because he's, you know, uh, jailed up, uh, being right. taken back to his uh, prison planet. Yeah. So it made me think of you know when you're learning film. One of the main things as uh, a young person who wants to get into film, you start learning all the different ways of, of writing a story, writing a script, right? And you're, you're, you're looking up and you're learning three-act structure. You're looking up sure. and learning five-act structure. You're looking up and learning eight-act eight, eight structure. You're looking up and learning mythic structure. You're like reading books like Save the Cat and so on. Right. And uh, they all tell you essentially what they're doing, which is a valuable thing to understand what they're doing, is they're establishing a pattern that they see in films. Right. Showing you how you can use that pattern yourself. And mm -hmm. an interesting thing that happened to me in this movie was I started remembering one of the old patterns that I had uh, uh, learned uh, from some of these resources, yeah. which was the um, the there's the protagonist, the relationship character and the antagonist. And you have the sort of like, those are your main three characters. And that's sort of your, like your triangle of character, right? Right. So you have and, the pilot, uh, uh, Riddick and Johns. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe not even Johns, but well, but here's the thing, right? Like they, they subvert it. Right. Cause I remembered like the big movie that came out and illustrated this and everyone was using this, the example of this was, um, okay. the dark Knight. So who's right, the right. protagonist antagonist and relationship character in the dark Knight? Go ahead. Who do you think? Um, oh, that's that one's actually difficult. Yeah, just um, give your best guess. <laughs> maybe. Well, protagonist we is quite because easy, we followed. Right? Yeah, Batman, but yeah, uh, I would say Joker is the relationship character, mm -hmm. and the antagonist is Harvey Dent. You're so right, but everyone, you know, most people will go, "Oh, well, it's Batman's the protagonist, the Joker's the antagonist, and Harvey Dent, or maybe you know, the girl Rachel." Yeah. is the relationship character right? right but it's no it's like no because the way that this pattern works the way that it's illustrated by the people that adhere to it and like it is there's the protagonist who wants something there's the antagonist who keeps them from getting it and then there's the relationship right. character who i forget some of the the points about him but there's sort of a turning moment where the relationship character uh, affects the protagonist a certain way and so sure. it's the joker is not the one that's actually keeping batman from getting what he wants it's right. harvey dent because right. harvey dent batman wants harvey dent to be able to replace him he doesn't want to be batman anymore you know yeah and he also wants rachel and harvey dent's in his way right um and so he has to kill well not kill but not save rachel in order to save harvey dent and then harvey dent falls you know he, right, he's right. no longer the white knight but in this movie it's very interesting because it's like oh well the pilot is that's what i was thinking again i was like oh well the pilot's the protagonist, you know, and well, and then I would the relationship character is probably Finn Diesel. But what's right. the antagonist? Is it the, I would say John's. Is it the world or is it the Johns? Yeah, I would say Johns. I, I feel like the world is just kind of this the the uh, what, what I would place as reality for them. Sure. You know, um, so it's just this. Uh, but it's strange, I think though. In, like in a it's lot strange of because and stuff. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's just strange, though, because when you think of Riddick, you think of Vin Diesel being the main character. And this franchise started off not even named Riddick, mm -hmm. you know, and he right. wasn't at all meant to be. But people latched on to him because he's such a great character. 
Right. But it was supposed to be. I mean, I feel bad for Rada Mitchell, you know, her franchise got taken away from her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I think this this is the best of the movies, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I do really like Chronicles of Verdict as well. Um, yeah. But I've always liked Pitch Black the most. Um, and I think it's because it's so... Uh, I felt like Chronicles of Riddick was more... It felt more like an offshoot um, after watching this film. Um, uh, more so than a continuation. Because it didn't really have much to do with this film other than... yeah. Uh, the character have you seen the the third one recently just the one that's called riddick i, I saw that once um they try to merge both movies they try right, to do chronicles right. of riddick and pitch black if if they were one movie right um it's which weird. i thought personally was a mistake but yeah um but no this first one uh i think there's definitely there's definitely some sort of insight here i i would say that i don't think it's um like masterfully put together but it is put together very well um and you can see that every single character here has has their own flaws and weaknesses and like this this situation kind of uh what what i was going to say before was uh in horror movies um usually what is going on is they're they're having uh essentially the world come in and expose uh, what's wrong with these people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that's exactly why we get horror from this film. And it, it, like I would say, yeah, it's sci-fi horror, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting because I think this is a really, really good horror film. Um, so much so that you kind of even forget that it's horror while you're watching it. You know? Yeah. Um, but no, like every single character has their own um uh their own weaknesses and riddick's is a little uh is saved for the end right but um i think the main character carolyn is uh her her thing is shown at the, her her weakness is shown right at the beginning which is um you know her kind of like self-centeredness yeah right? you know where she's crash landing right. and she almost ejects everyone in, in order to save her life right right um, yeah, she's going to, yeah, she's going to eject the entire passenger cabin to level out the ship. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, uh, John's is pretty like John's is a drug, drug addict who, uh, you know, is basically putting everybody at risk for his own greed. Yeah. You greed, know? I think it's the main one there. Yeah. I would say the, whatever his name is, the, um, the collector of artifacts yeah uh, the, the gluttony yeah gluttony <laughs> yeah then you have um, uh, there's also a um you know going with horror they definitely use religious language and it's interesting to me that there's many religious conversations throughout the the film but the guy who identifies himself as an atheist is the one that's killed immediately and also the one that accidentally murders a survivor I don't right. know if there's anything there, but like out of all of them who are talking about morality and believing in certain things and what you did wrong versus what I'm going to do right, he right. just gets kaputted immediately. <laughs> right. Um, but then there's, uh, yeah, the man of faith played by Keith yeah, David. The, 
the Muslim going on the uh, the pilgrimage to New Mecca. Right. Well, I, with his sons. And, uh, like, I, I think the criticism there is kind of like the how the uh like their faith in their their god right Mm -hmm. um has kind of made them uh feel like they are protected or something you know so like you see his children always just kind of wandering around going to places that like they really shouldn't be yeah you know um and if they like you know if, if they like had a little bit of skepticism about it, they might've been like, well, I'm not going to go into that dark room. Right. Because I'm not, I'm just a person. And you know, sure. Like, I mean, that's possible. I was yeah. interpreting it as more of a, an illustration of a trial of faith for the, the Muslim. No, definitely. Uh, well, it's the way he illustrated it as this was sort of the, the trial that um, Allah was giving him on his pilgrimage. Right. Well, um, I think that's exactly like, I don't think that the entire movie has like a criticism of faith. I think it had like the criticism was in the like type of faith that they had at the beginning, you know, where it was just this kind of like, let me, let me let my God steer the boat, you know? Yeah. Um, but let's see. Yeah. I think it's focusing much more in on the, the individual sins of the people. So you have the self-centeredness right. of the pilot and her, not her unwillingness uh um being self-sacrificial right um you have of course the greed of the bounty hunter and Mm -hmm. the gluttony um the woman who gets uh eaten in half Mm -hmm. what was her issue because that's the one thing i was thinking about see well that's that's why like i I think the first couple of people that die i kind of felt were just like um just there to die (laughs) yeah um (laughs) very possibly yeah like that's what I mean is I don't think this is like a masterpiece of the script. I think it's really good, you know? And mm-hmm. um, I would say as far as a horror script goes, there's a lot of meaning injected into it. Yeah. Um, but I also do feel like it's, it probably has a lot of horror tropes in it. And they're like, well, we need to build up the fear here. Sure. So we need to have people start dying in ways where, you know, like the first guy dies and we like, don't know how he died. Right. We just hear a sound and then like, all they see is this bloody hole in the ground, mm-hmm. you know, and like that to me just felt kind of like, um, you know, horror trope. Same with the same with the lady where uh, she just gets torn torn in half. Yeah, and that scene was really cool, and I think it did a lot to establish the world. But and it also um, illustrated Riddick's calmness compared right. to other people. Right, right. And you know what? That that could have been it too, where they're they're really talking about how um and maybe this is just me kind of projecting my own film onto it, but um what I try to in Reaper what I tried to showcase when um when uh reality kind of comes into a situation, you know, like everybody has their own view of who they are and what they are and what the world is and the problem is in your face. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, and, and he Riddick says that in this movie where he's like, you know, the second the dying starts, this whole fucked yeah. up family is going to turn on each other. Yeah. Right. I think of the, uh, the Jack Nicholson line at the beginning of the departed. Yeah. When we were kids, they said we could be cops or robbers. I say when you're staring at a loaded gun, what's the difference? Right. <laughs> um, and it, it's always interesting to see kind of, uh, because 
there, there are certain situations in the world where, uh, you know, essentially the only thing that'll get you through it is your um, acceptance of the reality that you're in now. Mm -hmm. Right. And when when people kind of manufacture these ideas about themselves that aren't based in reality, when they get put into situations like that, it doesn't fit. And, it, you know, therefore they die. Right. Well, or, that's a. I, I agree with you. I think you're really hitting the nail on the head with this movie, because the interesting thing about the pilot and Vin Diesel is I think they're essentially align in the sense that the thing they have to learn, which is right. self-sacrifice. Vin Diesel has a more accurate picture of reality. The thing that you're talking about right now, when the shit hits the fan, Vin Diesel, like nothing changes for him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing changes at all. What happens though, is she's trying to atone and trying to be self-sacrificial. And he, his picture of reality is so accurate that he predicts that they wouldn't make it and they didn't make it. But the reason they didn't make it is also because he's not willing to be self-sacrificial and he needs to tell her, you know, well, no, she needs to, and she does illustrate to him that he needs to be that way. Well, and he his, needs to do the right thing. His picture of reality, I think, um, like essentially at the end, what was different about his picture of reality than an actual reality is that he, he was pushing too far, far into the dark, right? Where he was, he's essentially has this image of the world around him. That's just, uh, you know, humans are selfish and self-centered. And when, when, the guns at their neck or the knives at their throat, they will always choose to save themselves. Yeah. Right? I mean, he has an, what you're saying, you know, a similar way of putting it is he's isolated. He's removed himself right. from the equation of the world rather than seeing if he could make a difference. Right. And, and this is where he is wrong about the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's not so much about, um, it, and I think that's, what's cool about this is like, you know, you have this film about how these these individuals are not able to survive because of their own perceptions of the, themselves and the world around them. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the end isn't about, hey, look who is right. Right. The mm -hmm. end is about how do we be more than that? You know? Yeah. Um, like, how do we be more than just the um, individual that survives? Sure. Um. And I think that's why, uh, like, and, and I think if there was a little better treatment around this in the film, I think it would have been more obvious. But the line from Riddick at the end where he says, not for me. Yeah, right? when she dies and saves him. Yeah. Right. Um, where, you know, he is this isolated criminal where, you know, like, there is that moment when he has the knife to her neck and she he asks her if... Um, if she would die for them. And she says, yes, you know, mm -hmm. and he says, how interesting. And so like, basically his, his reality was challenged. Right. But. Yeah. Cause someone who he saw the same in himself, because he almost killed her. Remember There's yeah. that initial scene where they're sort of hiking to find water. He's escaped. They know he's escaped and they're sort of like keeping watch out to make sure he doesn't kill them. Right. But they're around this skeleton of this sort of like almost dinosaur ruins. And her and the bounty hunter are talking and bounty hunter is essentially letting her know that he understands, you know, he's not an idiot. He right. knows that she tried to, to kill us. And the reason why her co-pilot died was he stopped her from doing that. Right. And uh, as Riddick is listening to them talk, he's getting ready to possibly kill her. Right. And do the surprise attack they're waiting for. And then as soon as he realizes that she's similar, that she's got that in instinct of self-survival that he does, 
a kindred spirit in a sense. Right. Um, he doesn't kill her and he takes it over here and he smells it in this primitive fashion. Right. Um, but I think that's that alliance there at the end there as well. He he's found, a, you know, this uh, person that's similar to him that he sees himself in. And yet she would die for for these people. She would self-sacrifice. Right. Well, she she breezes past the part that he got caught up on. Right. Yeah. Where she she realizes that, you know. Um, she she realized the point where survival becomes meaningless. And I, th- I think she touches on this earlier too, where she asked the bounty hunter what he's like, what he's so uh, afraid to lose, like what's so yeah. valuable in his life that he's so afraid to lose it. That's what he's, what, that's what she said. Right. Um, exactly. Where th- that's why I kind of always like this movie is because it like every, all of these characters are, I would say, um, you know they're they're representative of normal people, yeah. right? They're they're not these grand philosophers on this journey, right? Mm-hmm. And but the thing is, they're being put into a situation that stresses them as beings and pushes them to a point where um, they have to rec- uh, kind of reckon with all of these, um, like concepts, right? Yeah, where uh, and, and they don't always put it eloquently but um you know having having these people reckon with these concepts in this way is interesting and seeing uh carolyn go through all this um through all of this and i think she's actually the character that develops the most through all this yeah she's the protagonist um and she and she um exceeds riddick at the end who I, i would say is the most like at the very beginning of the film, the most developed, the most aware of um, reality around him. Yeah. Right. And then she kind of, I think at the very end supersedes him. Um, I agree. And I think that's what, you know, he's, he's like, he's kind of uh, throughout the whole film been in this position of superiority, knowing exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and why things should happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he gets, he gets taught a lesson at the very end, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's a, it's a really cool scene. And I think that's why, uh, this film's interesting because I think, like I was saying before, I think it's really, uh, easy to write it off. Yeah. Like, I I think it's very easy as a filmmaker to sit down with this film and, and kind of be like, like well, it's a, a B movie, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, a, like, <laughs> it's B movie, it's sci-fi, it's a little outdated. Right. Yeah. Um, and just not pay attention to those things. And I think because of that, a lot of a lot of film lovers have missed like an incredible journey, you know, that maybe wasn't told the best it could have been. But, you know, I'm very glad it was uh, you know, it was told. Yeah, it's very good. Um the uh and riddick also has you know he's taught primarily by her but there is those interesting uh juxtaposed scenes with uh there's about three of them i think where he's talking with the muslim right and people mm-hmm. an interesting um aspect of this movie is everyone has a preconceived notion of riddick and everyone has to make up their own mind about him you know right so the rich guy is deathly afraid you know the child uh imitates him Right, thinks he's amazing. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The captain, the captain, uh, what's her name again? Clarice. Uh, Carolyn. Um, 
Carolyn, okay. Yeah. She gives him a chance. She sees the good in him. The bounty hunter obviously sees him as highly dangerous, animalistic. Right. Um, but the I, the the Muslim, it was very interesting because he immediately projected a, a sort of lack of faith and a lack of belief, a sort of atheism onto a primitive atheism onto uh, right Riddick's character, and they have that great conversation where Riddick's like. He's sort of retailing his past. He's like, uh, do you think an infant left abandoned in an alleyway with his umbilical cord tied around his neck couldn't believe? Do you think a man thrown in the darkest hole of a world for years on end couldn't believe? Right. Yeah, I believe in God. I just hate the motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. like it's like a really good line. And it's it's yeah. what it is, is it's um, it's uh it's subverting expectations in the best way because it, normally those conversations don't happen in movies. And when they do, um, the, the Muslims assumption would have been right, you know, but it's sure. like this interesting thing where all of a sudden this character where you wouldn't think they would believe at all in, in this sort of thing, like a higher order or, you know, uh, morally ordained, uh, divinely ordained morality, uh, submits to it, but just says like, you know, he's just laughing at us, you know, like he, yeah. he does not give a shit. And, <laughs> um, and then of course, you know, he's poking the, the Muslim with it throughout the rest of the film as his sons die. And at right. the very end, um, when the Muslim saved and with Riddick being saved, the Muslim has a little bit of the last word in terms of, uh, yeah, this, says, is, this is my this faith is my God. or something. Right. Exactly. Which is yeah. like, I don't know. I don't think this movie is making a religious point as much as it's saying like, you know, the good's going to win. In a sense, like if you fight and you're willing yeah. to do self-sacrifice and this sort of thing, yeah, uh, which is what I think you know God stands for in this movie. Um, sure, which is yeah. So it is interesting. He has that. He has that sort of side journey, as well as his um, Riddick's interaction with our, our captain, our pilot. Right. So. Right. Well, and and you know, I wish I I do wish uh, you know this script had gone through the hands of a master writer because i think the people that wrote this like they had this very very uh well thought out concept and they did a really good job at bringing it to the screen um i think better than most people would have done but yeah um also i think th this what the script lacks is uh kind of this cohesion in the vision where um i, I think this is the same thing that was uh that i had an issue with in ready or not where mm. It, there was a lot of um, things that happened specifically for horror tropes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were disconnected. It's a, uh, it's things that have one perspective on them, essentially. You right. Know, right. Some of the ways I think about it where, you know, you hear this a lot when you're a young filmmaker and everyone's talking to you, everyone has a different way of saying it, but it's like everything in your movie should be doing more than one thing, you know, as opposed to these moments in ready or not, or this movie where it's like, well, we just got to do the horror genre now. We got to keep things moving forward right. in terms of the, the plot relating to the horror elements and people are afraid and people are dying. Right. You know? The way that I've always described it is that your entire movie needs to be connected to its undercurrent. Sure. Right. Um, like every single little aspect on the surface needs to have a deep root. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's ways that you can do that while still fulfilling uh, horror genre uh, tropes uh but you exactly. don't want those things floating with no root essentially right yeah um, exactly yeah and yeah when you have a uh and and when you have for example i, I think like the the girl jack 
Um, she's actually okay. an, uh, an example of this. Um, yeah. Because like, I think her, I think her character is very interesting throughout the film. And uh, I felt like after the horror genre trope, it just more so became about her being a girl um, rather than who she was as a person before that. Right. You know, her, her character sort of existed to throw that plot twist in at the end where it's like, how are they tracking us? Oh, okay. This young girl pretending to be a boy is actually girl. Right. Right. She's bleeding. They, right. These, these aliens can do that. So, right. So that was one where I was like, there, I, I felt like there was kind of a missed opportunity there. Um, they could have gone like a lot further with that character and, um, had like kind of added dimension to what we saw before with that character. Um, after we found out that she's a girl, you know? Yeah. Um, so in that instance, I was like, you know, kind of a missed opportunity there. And I think the reason that that was a missed opportunity was because that whole plot twist was a floating horror trope. Mm-hmm. Right. Where, you know, where, where you have the, Oh, right. How are, how are they tracking us? Right. They don't know how they're being followed and they figure yeah. it out, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is part of what I talk about. I know we have probably different ways of conceiving of this in our own mind, but when I say plot's important to me, but it's the thing that's probably, you know, least important to me and are those primary elements, sure. you know, in terms of character and everything, because this is the way sort of that, some of that thinking can trip you up that I see a, a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and if you're like heavily plot oriented, then, um, I totally agree that, um, you're going to have these, uh, floater events, which don't have anything to do with, um, with anything else in your film. Right. Yeah. Um, and while it might get you from point A to point B, that's not what we're doing here, right? We're trying to, uh, we're not achieve just something. trying to get there. We're trying to achieve, uh, we're, we're trying to get the audience there, right? We're trying to get yeah. the audience um, to feel the message and understand. And I think, I think um, Riddick, or sorry, uh, Pitch Black here, not being as um, impactful as it should have been um, with like because i think with this storyline it should have should have been very impactful right yeah um because this is a this is an example of a story that didn't have to be science fiction which i i think is the best science fiction right mm-hmm. um when you could have pulled this out and turned this into a story that existed in the real world right just take out yeah. like just take out the aliens and turn them into like enemy soldiers or something you know yeah you could have easily made this story about like i don't know a group of people in world war ii that had to cross german lines or whatever right yeah um and but i think the science fiction element allowed them to push further faster Mm -hmm. right and i think that's the best use of science fiction is when it's used to um simplify you know um and the, the only problem that i had with it was that it just like there was a lot of the handling that wasn't um uh, just kind of the handling of a lot of the situations weren't done well, in my opinion. Um, okay. Like kind of this whole like moment at the end where uh, R- Riddick's saying, not for me, not for me. Yeah. Um, that could have been a beautiful scene. Yeah. You know, um, but they just panned up towards the stars while he was talking and they just did a crossfade into him flying the ship. 
Sure. You know, and I was like, well, that you just glossed over that. <laughs> well, that is that yeah. is one thing. One thing that a lot of movies don't do and the great movies generally do is they uh, when they've earned the moment, they earn it. You know what I mean? They, right. Right. They, they they're like, I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to saturate you in this moment now that I finally earned it. You know, I'm going to. Right. Um, and I think that's a lot the of crescendo, what... the catharsis, right. emotion, you know. So. This is something that I'm going to kind of like bring up a lot if, you know, um, you guys listen to this podcast more often is um, letting uh, emotion, uh, sorry, not emotions, but letting moments breathe. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is one of my biggest criticisms of a lot of Hollywood blockbusters, uh, especially these days. Uh, One of my biggest problems with the new Star Wars franchise, a lot of the Marvel movies, um, it's that they don't let moments breathe and that they would rather cut the 10 seconds after someone says a line um, mm. than um, like plot based scenes. Right. And yeah. I think that's a huge mistake because essentially that's where the soul of your film exists is in these moments, these human moments that these characters have. Yeah. Right. And just because, you know, on your audio bar, it says that there's nothing happening doesn't mean there's nothing happening. Right. Um, I mean, this is this is how I've loved filmmaking from early on. It was it was these moments. You know, frankly, I was the kid that got into filmmaking because I would rewatch scenes. From yeah. A movie. You know absolutely. What I mean? And that's what this is. Essentially, it's very related to what I call uh, rhythm. You know, that element of filmmaking relating to time. Yeah. Um, but- but it's like, uh, you know, it's like the 25th hour when they get in the fight under the bridge and the bird, the wings of the birds are flapping and it goes silent. You know, it's it's these moments. Right. Um, that that well, just make it. Well, and, and that's why I'm saying like that's that's where the soul of your film is. Right. Yeah. Is in these moments. And that's why uh, cutting it is the worst possible thing you can do for your film. Yeah. Right. Um, and like for producers in Hollywood, uh, they they walk in and they've seen this film you know, 15, 30 times uh, in the last couple weeks, right? And this moment uh, seems like empty space to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so they'll be like, well, why don't we just cut to the next line right after he says this? Why are we holding on his face for 10 seconds, right? Um, And this is where I think the director is very important because I think as the director, it's your job to maintain the vision, right? And other people are going to come in and have their input and like tell you how it should be. But you have to be able to um, you have to be able to defend the vision. Right. Yeah. And like as much as I like to blame producers on that part, it is also the fault of the director not being able to explain why this moment is important. Yeah. Right. And because I've never worked with a producer or talked to a producer that is um, is against making the moments more fulfilling right yeah um you know i've talked to producers that you know really want this movie down to 90 minutes but i think (laughs) um which i totally disagree with but you know if they did really want it down to 20 minutes and they came in and they were talking about cutting let's say that there was a big old scene at the end there where he says not for me right yeah and he's just sitting there um and for the first time looking defeated being rained on right um and let's say they look at that cut and they're like, well, actually, let's cut this here because we can save we can save 15 seconds at the end of this uh, <laughs> scene. 
And I, I think what, what you could tell them is that this is the last thing that we should cut because this part's so important. Explain yeah. to them how this fits into the thematic narrative of the film and how this is going to be the moment of um, kind of a, an emotional high point for the audience. Yeah. Right. And how you would rather cut something else. Right. Um, and then when you get into um, like what other parts you would rather cut, then you might have the producer be like, well, I guess we don't have to cut it. Right. Because, sure. <laughs> because um, when they see like, you know, the scary horror part that's, you know, going to get a reaction out of the audience, they might not want to cut that, you know, yeah. when you're saying that that's what you would rather cut. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, it's the, uh, it's similar like that, that negotiation strategy is similar to the, the whole Fincher thing with the, uh, the fight club mm-hmm. where the original line was, um, I want to have your abortion. And then, it, yeah. um, it, 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 it he, he was like, okay, well then, uh, if I change it, can I have anything I want? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything you want. He's like, and so it changed to, I haven't been fucked like that since kindergarten or something like that. So, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it's the the line in uh, Tyler Durden and uh, whatever her name is. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's yeah, yep. So, <laughs> um, so negotiate game that way. But what you're talking about about these great moments, um, this even relates back to what I've been saying. I think I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast about like when you make a short film. What I would recommend to anyone making a short film is yeah you can do the standard thing and you can definitely achieve that that's a possibility of doing the plot the contained story in a short film but i would highly recommend like just trying to do like a scene out of a movie or even even if you don't have the emotional context to sort of achieve it try to make one of these moments i mean one of my first short yeah. films was quite literally trying to to rip rip off spike lee's great moment that i just mentioned in the 25th hour with the birds flapping and the great right and the great sort right. of like uh uh echoey wind to it and uh it turned out good you know it turned out really good it was like so yeah i think that's more important than trying to get a plot right initially especially when you have such less time to do it you know and like this is what your crescendo so you better be good at it so exactly well and this is what filmmaking is about right like everything else is uh is craftsmanship yeah right um if you don't have this in you um what are you doing why are you in yeah. film? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because this is always what we're trying to capture is this moment. Right. Um, and I think that it, like that's that was the biggest travesty about this film for me was like, especially this time watching it, um, mm. like kind of understanding the the insights that the film was offering up a little better this time. Um, and then um, kind of seeing this crescendo at the end and then having them just gloss over it with a crossfade like that felt you know like i was like wow you just really shot yourself in the foot right there yeah you know and i would i would have preferred because they had that ending that kind of like set them up for uh a franchise you know and i would have actually preferred that they didn't even have that um actually you know what this whole this whole moment at the end where riddick um, decides that he's gonna wait for a second and then kill a bunch of the aliens. Yeah, you know, um, I would have said cut that. Yeah, and you just know, make the other scene a little better. Yeah, yeah, and then you could have just cut to them in space. You mm-hmm. know, um, 
Because they could have, man. They could have. Like, that went by so fast. All of a sudden, she's helping him up, and then she's dead flying off into the sky. Well, the death was, the death being fast was fine, you know? Um, I was okay with that, where she was kind of Well, yeah, but they could have even had more time right after. Exactly, exactly. The entire thing could have been just more, breathed more life into it and resonated so much more. Right. Um, And then, like, I, I think maybe what could have helped the film a little more was, um, because he's he and her are the only pilots, right? And now he's injured and she's dead. And mm-hmm. so now he's having to fight to get back to this ship to save these two that she was going to save. Yeah. You know, and, and except the cross, so to speak. Exactly. Um But that wasn't and, there either. <laughs> right. And then you could have had this incredibly just human moment from uh Riddick where, you know, he was this person that who thought he was in line with reality and then he was shown like a greater reality, right? By this, he girl. can have an impact on reality, right? Right, exactly, right. That he didn't just have to be a bystander that reacted to it, and yeah, um, like that. That would have been an incredibly powerful ending, and I think that that would have, um, that would have even like probably forgiven all the other treatment problems in terms of uh, like score and uh, just kind of like cheesy one liners. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm not going to knock on the cheesy one liners. I love them from this movie. Uh, <laughs> Nate, one of my good friends, Nate, and I, we have re- repeated that uh, looks clear line so many times throughout middle school. Yeah. <laughs> nice. You know, um, just any time we were playing a video game together or something, you know, and one of us asked if it if it was clear, you know, always 100 percent without fail. <laughs> that line. <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, but That's, uh, the they, there's some great lines in the the second movie as well. I'm skipping over the anime, but the Chronicles of Riddick. Sure. Um, the one where you know they release those beasts in the prison to kill everyone. Yeah. And he's just chilling with the dog. There's this like murderous <laughs> alien dog. Beast. Yeah. And he's just he just as the people the guards coming to see if he's dead, he just slaps it on the ass and it, it sort of um, purrs and he's like, it's an animal thing. <laughs> Me and my dad would say that to each other all the time. Right, our right. Dogs, yeah. our dogs on our left or something. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I definitely understand the appeal of, uh, you know, that kind of writing. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe what they could have done was just save it for Riddick. Yeah. Yeah. But I could definitely see that. Really, the only, the only issue that I had with the film, the only real issue was just not letting that moment at the end breathe. You know, because I think they let some of the other mo- moments breathe pretty well. Yeah, um, but maybe I mean, there were some uh, yeah. there's some really good moments in this uh, in this film as well, relating towards the action and so on. Like uh, yeah. when uh, he that great scene where he just sort of uh, pops his shoulders out, you know? Oh yeah, and those, those, that's some great sound design there. Yeah, um, and uh, frees himself, and then you have uh, some of the fights with uh, he kills one of the aliens pretty spectacularly, and that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so. Actually, that was my least favorite line in the movie, though, was him telling yeah. the alien that he did not know who he's fucking with. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> um, uh, I liked it. Yeah. I liked yeah. It. Uh, <laughs> well, buddy, I think I think that's it. I think we're lagging out here. Sure. So. All right, everyone. Uh, go ahead and watch Pitch Black. It's worth it. And uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds good. All right. I'll see you guys. Hey guys, Quaid here. After recording the episode with Nick, I went searching on YouTube for a good interview with the director. I found a lesser known YouTube channel by the name of Hey Guys 
that centers in cinema-focused interviews. And they had a specialty interview just a few days ago with the director for his upcoming restoration of Pitch Black 4K by Arrow Video, a company similar to Criterion. Here's some clips from that. And if you haven't seen the movie, consider getting the 4K to watch it. It has a new color grade as well as some other features. Thanks. You know, it's just about enough time where I can look at the movie again <clears throat> with something that resembles fresh eyes. Meaning, it's like, I'm not one who's big on looking at my movies. If I'm channel surfing at night I, and one's on, I'll look at it for five minutes and then you know, I'm off to something else, right? Because I don't want to relive all the mistakes and all the pain of production. <clears throat> so, so to sit down with Pitch Black and see it again while we regraded it, we recolor timed it, and uh, you know checked for did the uh, quality control checks. It was just enough time where I could sit back and kind of enjoy the movie as a movie, rather than a recitation of all the pain and suffering we endured while we were making the movie in the outback of Australia. So. I was actually able to, even though my eyes still goes to the problem areas, the problem areas that I never got right. Now, at the end of the process of um, color timing the, uh, the new master, I sat back and I said, you know what? It's a pretty good movie, which is sort of high praise for me because I'm always super critical of my own work. How did this start for you? How did Pitch Black start for you? Because, uh, forgive me if this is incorrect, but this this ties in a little bit to you and Alien 3, is that correct? Or is that is that kind of very, is that like fan fiction, well, as it were? It doesn't, they don't tie into each other, really. I mean, I did do a pass on Alien 3 um, when the, for Fox. If, so the two separate stories, here's, here's the Alien story. Alien 3, all I did was write maybe a draft or draft and a half of that when the studio, Fox, wanted to do it without the Ripley character. They didn't want to be beholden to that character and they didn't want to base on the character and they didn't know if Sigourney was going to be coming back, all that kind of stuff. And so I said, fine, I'll write one without. Um, so I replaced uh, her with a male lead. Everyone seemed to like it. But then change of um, leadership of the studio, new guy comes in and he says, I'm not going to make this without Sigourney Weaver. So we have a script that everybody wants to do, likes, is ready to go. Now we got to figure out how to incorporate Sigourney. So I said, all right, I'll go. All right, I have some ideas about how to, how to gender switch the, uh, the male lead into and create into Ripley. Um, so I went out to New York and I sat with uh, Sigourney and talked her through it. And um, she got on board. So I flew back to Los Angeles and said, okay, I think I see a way and I think your actress is on board. So let me write that version. So I did do another pass. Oh, here's what, here's what happened. And it's treacherous, man. So about this, so I start to write a pass converting uh, the, my male lead into uh, Ripley with a lot of modifications to make that work. At the same time, they hire, they start to hire a director. Uh, Vincent Ward, whose work I really liked, New Zealand director. I thought he'd be great. But then as I'm like trying to put the, I'm about two thirds way through my second draft, the Ripley centric draft. I hear rumors that the director is off writing his version of the script while I'm writing my version of the script. And that's 
technically okay from a Writers Guild standpoint, but the studio is supposed to let you know that there are other writers on the same project at the same time, and they never told me that. I had to call them up, studio, and say, what the fuck is going on with this project? And they gave me this, this total bullshit about, oh, the director is not writing Alien 3, the director is writing Alien 4. I said, but he's directing Alien 3, is that correct? Yes. I said, I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> so I basically just slapped it together, sent it to the studio, and said, pay me. Uh, and that was the end of my tenure on Alien 3. So Vincent Ward went off and did Monks in Space, and they realized they didn't like Vincent Ward, that maybe he was a little too much of a handful, and uh, they fired him. <laughs> so it's like they're in total chaos at this point, but they've got their actors on. So, so you know, that's when Walter Hill and David Geiler step back in, and they try to pull it together, and, and, uh, and then Fincher. So, and you see echoes of... Uh, you see echoes of Monks in Space. It is Monks in Space still, but in a very different way than I think what uh, Vincent had in mind. So it was a troubled, uh, chaotic relationship from the start. But, you know, a chaotic relationship doesn't, a chaotic start to production doesn't mean, or even a chaotic production doesn't mean that you're going to make a bad movie, you know. So in terms of Pitch Black then, I mean, obviously, you touched one there about the, you shot it in, I know you shot it in South Australia, I believe, in the Outback and, you had twenty, thirty million dollar budget or whatever. So, in terms of in terms of looking back at the film now and in your experience on it, how did you find the experience? Because in, in a minute, I'm going to ask you about going from. Well, I'll ask you it now. Going from a twenty, thirty million dollar budget on Pitch Black to then when you did the sequel, which was a huge, huge budget. Did you prefer doing the smaller budget, even though there were problems, or did you prefer the bigger budget, even though there may or may not have been problems on that as well? Yeah, Pitch Black was like a $21 million movie, maybe 22 by the time we finished. And then the second one uh, was a big studio movie uh, at 105. And then the third movie we made independently and financed it ourselves. And that was probably 36, 37, 38, right around there. So, you know, it's, we're all over the place in terms of budget and, and um, ambition. The question was, is it a big, uh, is it a big, look, uh, Pitch Black was effective for what it, what it, what it was, and um, especially for its characters and the unexpected, I think, depth of characters for a genre piece. Because we had a very genre setup, you know, which was rather a, fam a familiar setup as well, which is, you know, people crash land on a planet and they have to fight for their survival. You know, we've seen that before. So I said, if we're going to do that, then give me the script and let me, you know, let me do what I, what I want to do with the characters, which is do all these reversals of expectations, which is, you know, the John's character. Here's the classic hero, square jawed guy. He's got a cute dimple in his chin. Uh, he's got the shiny badge. So he's going to be the guy who's going to lead us through this and he's going to win the girl in the end. And, you know, that's the expectation. I said, if that is the expectation, <laughs> what are we going to do? What are we really going to do? So let's turn him into a morphine freak and let's turn him into a coward and let's have him be willing to kill the kid to save his own skin when things get, when the going gets tough. And then that guy who you've had locked up the whole time, you know, that badass serial killer. Well, as far as I can tell, he really hasn't killed anybody in the course of the movie. So why are we scared of him? And could he ever be the savior of this movie, right? So I said, that's what I want to do with that character. And then the Fry character, played by uh, Rod Mitchell, 
uh, you know, she's posing as the captain of the ship, but she's really not the captain of the ship. And by the way, she was willing to kill everybody in the opening sequence. So she may be the greatest serial killer of them all, right? But she may be the true serial killer here. <laughs> yeah. So I love all those uh, reversals of expectations and just doing what you don't expect. And, um, and I think that's what elevated the movie, to tell the truth. It really wasn't the production value. We were just too strapped too many times. So, you know, we made 20 million bucks go a long way. Uh, no doubt. So the original question was what it was like stepping up to a, a big budget. Well, you know, the difference is that you've got to, instead of an R-rated movie, then suddenly you're spending that much money. The studio says you must be a PG-13. There's no arguing it. Unless you want to cut $30 million out of your budget right now. And then suddenly all those great sequences that you had imagined, you know, of armies invading and, and the troop carriers bowing to the Lord Marshal and all those, all those great promenade sequences that we had, all those being whisked away and many, many more. Then suddenly, okay, we're a PG-13, right? Just so you can carry out the vision that you've already scripted and boarded <clears throat> and started, and started uh, pre-production on. So um, that was the change of attitude. And then the studio has a lot of input, you know? Along the way, they have input into the script, they have input into editing and all those things. And as a, a reaction, if not an overreaction to that filmmaking um, uh, effort, we, uh, we decided to make the third movie ourselves.